0: For a long time, uh, the UK was known for making some great exports. Things like football, uh, tea, and uh, I can not really think of anything else. Good that we've exported, but we've exported some good stuff over the years. But the last couple of years, one of our main success, successful um, exports has been crime dramas. I know there's quite a few lovers in the room here who are particularly fond of crime dramas. Last year was a big year for some big UK crime dramas. Actually, whenever I'm chatting to Americans outside of uh, our British context, they always want to know what the next big UK crime drama is going to be. They get it on Brickbox or something like that. And they absolutely uh, love it. And we do cheer them out. And if you're a regular consumer of crime dramas, you know how they work. And we actually, if you watch enough of them, you can almost become fooled that you could do that job. Like, we could if just save a few... Uh, chevrons on our our blazer we can actually go and be a police officer Like we know how it works, we know all the acronyms we know what a DCI is, we all know what an OCG is and uh, we know that if we were to turn up on a crime scene we know what the priorities are like if the guy's gone or the lady's gone who's committed the crime the first thing we need to do is secure the scene and then we need to get some statements right, some witness statements and we go around and we ask people what they have seen and what they heard and who was there and what time it took place. And, and we gather all these witness statements uh, together because we want to get an accurate account of what happened from the people who actually saw it. An accurate account from the eyewitnesses. So that we can make sure that, that when we go back to the office, we really know what we're talking about. And we know who we're talking about. And that's what we get in the Gospel of Mark. An accurate account of the life of Jesus from the people who were actually there. From the eyewitnesses. Mark's Gospel is the first written account of the life of Jesus that we have. It was written somewhere around 70 AD. So about 30 to 40 years after the resurrection of Jesus. And in between that time, for those 30 or 40 years, there wasn't really anything written down in terms of eyewitness report they didn't really need to because the eyewitnesses were still alive if you wanted to know about the life of Jesus you could just talk to someone because they'd seen it if you wanted to know about the resurrection of Jesus you could talk to someone in fact in uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 the apostle Paul is teaching about the resurrection and he teaches about the resurrection as a historical fact Uh, 1 Corinthians was written before any of the gospels were written And Paul says, listen, if you don't believe me, if you don't think what I'm saying is true, you can just go and speak to the people. At least 500 people saw the resurrected Jesus. They're eyewitnesses and lots of them are still alive. So you can just go and speak to them. The eyewitnesses were still alive at at that point. And so as much as the religious authorities and the leaders might have wanted to, to spread rumors about Jesus and falsehoods about Jesus, they couldn't. Because if they wanted to say, well, Jesus did this or Jesus didn't do that. Well, I could say that's just not true because I was there. I saw what he did. I saw what he said. And, And Bob over there, he saw what Jesus did. And Barbara over there, she saw what Jesus did. So you can speak to these people and they will tell you exactly what Jesus did and didn't do. But there came a point in time where Bob and Barbara, I'm sure they weren't the names of people who were around in Jesus' day, but those type of people, the eyewitnesses, started to die. And so it became particularly important for the apostles to write down. The oral tradition was okay for a time, but once those eyewitnesses started to go, it became important to to produce an authorised, approved, written account of what those eyewitnesses had seen before they went and so Mark, Matthew, Luke, and John, and they were probably written in that order, Mark, Matthew, Luke, and John. They collected together these eyewitness statements to present us, all those who read them, to present us with the real Jesus. The real Jesus. That's who we're going to encounter as we work our way through the Gospel of Mark, the real Jesus. And folks, there is, there is no one that we need to know more than him. There is no one that our city needs to know more than the real Jesus. There is no one that we need to encounter more often than the real Jesus. And there is no one that the people who we are desperate to reach need to encounter more than the real Jesus. And as we immerse ourselves in this gospel over the next few years, our big prayer is going to be this. That we, as Liberty Church, and the people that we're connected to, that we encounter him. That we encounter the real Jesus. That they encounter the real Jesus. That is the person that we and our city need to encounter more than anything. And see it's interesting. Our country, the UK, our context is a post-Christian context. That means that, that people don't automatically think that they're Christian. There was a time when that was true. 60 years ago people would, the majority of people would say that they were Christian. But we're now post-Christian, that isn't the case. We're also post Church, that means that people don't automatically go to church on a Sunday. They don't think that that's a priority anymore. But, but it's interesting, a lot of people are still very, very spiritual. Even though they're post-Christian and post-church, particularly in our context, people are spiritual. You just take a walk down Lark Lane and you see that, right? You look at the type of shops that we have around us here and you talk to the people in those Shop, you'll see that our context here, our community is deeply spiritual. Post-Christian folks doesn't mean post-Jesus. It's interesting, I was talking to a Reiki master. If you don't know what a Reiki master is, don't look her up, it's fine. I'll just tell you that it's kind of at the top of the chain of the New Age movements. Like you can't really get much higher than a Reiki master. And I was talking to this lady a while ago and I was sharing about Jesus with her. Now, this is someone who's deeply embedded in the new age. And I'm talking about who Jesus is, what he's done. I'm talking about the gospel. And she's just looking at me and smiling and nodding. And I said to her, What do you think about Jesus? And she said, Yeah, I love him. That's interesting, isn't it? Just because people are post church, post Christian, it doesn't mean that they are post Jesus. People are still interested in Jesus. The issue is, which Jesus are they interested in? It's not the real Jesus. The Jesus that most folks would like to entertain is a Jesus of their own creation. A Jesus who does things that that they like to do. A Jesus who pats them on the back. A Jesus who affirms them in what they're doing already. That's the Jesus that people generally like outside the church. They're cool with that Jesus. Like they're happy to hear about that Jesus. They're happy to spend time with that Jesus. A Jesus of their own creation. But the problem with that Jesus is he doesn't change you. He's happy to just keep you as you are. He doesn't transform you because he just pats you on the back. That's not the Jesus that we need, folks. We need the real Jesus who speaks truth, the real Jesus who speaks life, the real Jesus who is willing to confront us in our sin and say, don't go that way, go this way. A real Jesus, the only Jesus who is able to lead us into life. We need the real Jesus. They need, need the real Jesus. And that's who we're going to find in the Gospel of Mark. Mark's Gospel is the shortest of the four Gospels, Mark, Matthew, Luke and John. Uh, Mark is written by Mark, obviously. Um, but Mark's also called in the New Testament, John Mark. So you'll come across John Mark in some of the letters in Acts. Uh, John Mark's mom you'll see in Acts chapter 12, she was really instrumental in the early church. She opened up her house and allowed the church to meet there regularly. It was a bit of a base for the church at that point in time. John Mark went on to be a companion of the Apostle Paul. He travelled with him. And if you know some of his story, you'll know that he was the source of a bit of friction for Paul and some of the other apostles. John Mark probably ends his life as Peter's helper, helping to interpret some of the languages for Peter as he writes his letters. And you'll know if you've read Mark and read some of the other Gospels, you know that Mark writes differently to the other Gospel writers. So just think back to that police incident. Okay, we've all got our our constable's helmets on and our jackets and we turn up at the scene, and we collect all of those witness statements. And what we find is that every witness would probably see the same thing, but the way that they report what they've seen might sound different. Depending on what, what perspective they're watching. Or depending on what, what their interest is. Or depending on their communication style. So if I turned up at a crime scene, I'd be the guy who'd sit the police officer down. And two hours later, he'd probably get the nub of what's going on. Like, I'm, I'm that kind of guy. Elizabeth compliments me that I tell a two-second story in two hours. Like, I like to drag it out. I'm a detail kind of guy. Like, I'm looking at everything. And I'm looking at all of the things that are going on. That's probably Matthew and Luke. They're the detail guys. They like the context. Matthew and Luke, you get lots of the, the written dialogue that Jesus is having. John's more of a pastoral guy. So he's probably the guy sitting down making cups of tea for everyone, making sure everyone's okay. He's got a real pastoral heart in how he writes his gospel. Mark is the guy who just cuts to the chase. like He just, he just wants to get to the main point as fast as he can. And that's what we see here in these first few verses. Look at verse 1 with me in chapter 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's Mark's introduction. So there's no genealogy. There's no family history like we find in Luke and Matthew. There's no kind of theological groundwork going all the way back to creation and unpacking how Jesus is, is the one who is there at the beginning like John does. He just gets straight to the point. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark wants us to get to the real Jesus straight away. The Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now we're probably all of us familiar with with that title, Jesus Christ. But Mark means something probably a little bit different to what we to what we think when we read that name, Jesus Christ. The man that Mark is introducing us. To hear his name is Jesus. Like my name is Neil or Andy's name is Andy or Michelle's name is Michelle. Like that was his name. That's how people would refer to him, Jesus. But Christ, Christ isn't his surname. Like my surname would be Forsyth. Christ Christ is a description of who Jesus is. Christ literally means anointed one. One who is set apart. And it's a word that is used most commonly for kings. So Jesus, that's his name, is the anointed king. That's what Mark is telling us. That's who the real Jesus is, the anointed king. And then he goes on to tell us that the anointed king is also the son of God. The anointed king who is the son of God. Now the Bible Bible calls Christians sons of God. It calls angels sons of God. But in the rest of Mark's opening paragraph here, Mark tells us why Jesus, the anointed king, was the son of God. Why he was different and why he was greater than any other man or woman. Than any other angelic creature. Why he was the (laughs) son of God. Look down at verse 2 and 3 with me. Let me read this again. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. So Mark is quoting, you'll see from the Old Testament there, from the prophet Isaiah. And now it's helpful to know that Mark is writing to a particular people. He's writing predominantly to Roman Gentiles. So Roman Christians who didn't have a Jewish heritage. And so you'll see through Mark's gospel, he doesn't really quote the Old Testament much. Matthew and Luke do that quite a lot. That's really important for them because of the people that they're writing to. But for Mark, because he's writing to those who don't really have a grid for the Old Testament, he doesn't really go to the Old Testament much. So when he does, it's important to really listen to what he's saying. He's being really deliberate in using a quote here from the Old Testament. And this quote, as we said, is from the prophet Isaiah. It was written somewhere near 700 years before the birth of Jesus. And in in Isaiah, in the book, you can read it in the Old Testament. Isaiah prophesies about a king. A king who will come to his people in Jerusalem. And in Isaiah chapter 40, which is where this quote is taken from. Isaiah talks about that king coming as God himself. The Lord himself will come. And when this king comes to his people in Jerusalem. He is going to be a king who will show them his glory. He's going to put his godness on display. That's what to show his glory means. He's going to show his people his glory. He's going to show his glory to the nations. And Isaiah says as well in Isaiah 40 that before the Lord comes, he is going to, He's going to send a messenger, one to prepare the way for the King coming. And we see in verse 4 that that messenger is John the Baptist. So this afternoon, as we step into Mark, we're going we're to see something of John the Baptist, but we're really going to see three things about the coming of this king. The coming of this king who is the Lord himself. Firstly, we're going to see that he is the king who comes to us. And then we're going to see that he is the king who meets us. And then finally, we're going to see that he is the king who saves us. Even just in these first eight verses, that's what we get to see. So firstly, the king who comes to us. Mark is telling us that God himself came and lived amongst us. And now if you've been a Christian for a while, that might not be new news to you. And that might not be exciting news to you. That God came and put on human flesh and lived amongst us. That the king came and dwelt amongst us. But I just for the next few minutes just want to recapture some of the wonder of the incarnation for us. Verse 3 there. When Mark quotes from Isaiah, he says this, the, 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 uh, the one who's going to come, John the Baptist, will prepare the way of the Lord. He's going to make his path straight. He's going to prepare the way of the Lord. And, and the Lord, that word there, L-O-R-D, the Lord there in Hebrew is this name Yahweh. Yahweh, that is the, the personal covenant name of God. The holy name of God. It's the name that, if you know the the story of Moses and the burning bush, that's the name that God gives to Moses. This is who I am, Yahweh. It is his holy name, the holy name of the creator God, the one who holds all things together, the one who created the heavens and the earth. And Yahweh, that name, it was considered so holy by the Jews that they wouldn't even say it. They wouldn't even write it down. They wouldn't say it or write it. They considered God's covenant name so holy. And Mark, as he says that Jesus is that Lord, he is saying that Jesus is that holy God. He is the the creator and ruler and judge over all creation. This man that has come to earth is God himself. See, all other religions, they flip that on its head. They say that if we want to have an encounter with the divine or with with the energy or with the power or with the force, whatever it is that we want to get some of, if we want to have an encounter with, with that thing, we need to go to them. Tim Keller uses this illustration of it being like a mountain. We need to climb their holy mountain in order to get to them. If we want to find the divine, we need to scale their holy mountain with, with good works or with, with, with spiritual discipline or with a path of discovery. We need to scale the mountain in order to get to them. So in the new age, you need to align your chakras if you're going to find that, that divine force, that divine energy. In Islam, it's the five pillars. In Buddhism, it's the eightfold path. In Judaism, it's the ten commandments. You need to do these things in order to have an encounter with the divine, in order to have an encounter with the energy, with the power or the force. You need to climb the mountain. Christianity is completely opposite. In the Christian faith, the divine comes down the mountain to us. He condescends to us. He comes to find us. So determined was God to save a people. He came himself to us. And that is a big deal, folks. Some of us have been Christians for as long as we can remember. Just allow the wonder of the incarnation to to, to fill your heart with joy again today. That God would come to you. That is a big deal for us and it was an especially big deal for the Jews. The Jews had huge cultural and intellectual barriers to seeing that God would come to us as a man. Like remember, they wouldn't even say his name. They saw him as so holy. They wouldn't even write down his name. They saw him as so holy. The idea that God would come to us in weakness and in vulnerability... And that he would ultimately go to a cross and die for us. That was so contrary to what they believed. And yet they did. They did believe. All of the first followers of Jesus were Jews. Folks, this is hugely encouraging when we think about reaching our city with the gospel. So some of us might look at our city and think they're too skeptical about Jesus. They're never going to believe. Or their intellect just gets in the way of them understanding and coming to a place where they can believe in the supernatural. There's too many cultural barriers. There's too many intellectual barriers. There's too many issues for them to get over in in seeing that God would come and live amongst us and die for us. Folks, the Jews had far more many barriers than they do. They had far more cultural barriers than anyone in our city does. Far more intellectual barriers than anyone in our city does in believing that the Lord Jesus Christ would come and live amongst us and die for us. And yet so many of them did believe. Something they encountered with the real King Jesus broke down their barriers to put in their faith in him. And as we work our way through this gospel, Mark is going to show us exactly what it is that they encountered. Jesus is the king who has come. And next we see he is the king who meets us. He's the king who meets us. In verse four, we'll see, we're introduced to John the Baptist. And John the Baptist is found out in the wilderness. And now when we think of the wilderness, we don't really have a a context for it, do we? Like we don't have wilderness really in the UK. Like, I don't know, like we're thinking the peaks or maybe the top of The mountains and the lakes, places like that. The wilderness for for John the Baptist was like a real wilderness, okay? So think like desert. Think somewhere that's barren and wild and isolated. It was a harsh environment. And that's where John the Baptist is and we'll see next week. That's where Jesus comes to meet him. Jesus comes out to the wilderness to meet John. And now that's significant, The wilderness is significant because we see that the wilderness is most commonly the place where God meets us. We might not think it. We might not like it to be true. But God loves to find his people in the wilderness. If you know the Old Testament, think about how we see that time and again. Jacob wrestles with God in the wilderness. Moses meets God at the burning bush. In the wilderness. God's people Israel become his people. In the wilderness. Elijah who was a a forerunner for John the Baptist. He's fleeing from Jezebel and where does he meet God? In the wilderness. The wilderness is a place where God loves to meet his folks. In the Old Testament the, the wilderness is a place where there is no water. Think about God's people in the Exodus. They're desperate for water and... And God loves to have them there because they become completely dependent on him. They have no water, so God's people depend on him to quench their thirst in order that they can live. They have no food, and so they depend on God for manna from heaven so that they can live. They have no protection. And so they depend on God for deliverance from Pharaoh in order to live. They're isolated, so they depend on God for his presence in the tabernacle, in the, in the cloud of fire and smoke, in order that they can live. In the wilderness, we learn deep dependence on Jesus, which is why even now the wilderness is a place where he loves to meet us. So folks, this afternoon, be encouraged if you're feeling thirsty, if you're feeling tired, if you're feeling weary, if you're feeling like your resources have run dry, could it be, could it be that Jesus has you in that place because he wants to meet you there? He has you there because he wants you to depend on him. Not on your own resources, not on the things of this world, but to throw yourself entirely on the only one who can satisfy, on the only one who can give you life. The wilderness is a place where Jesus meets us. And that's actually clear in John's baptism. So, in verse 4 to 8, we see John is out in the wilderness baptizing people. By the river Jordan, they're confessing their sins. And we see in verse 4, it's a baptism of repentance and a baptism of forgiveness. And now we might think, as we, as we come across baptism and, and learn about John the baptizer, uh, that baptism is a new thing. But it wasn't. Long before John the baptizer was baptizing, God's people would get a kind of baptism. If you wanted to go into the tabernacle, you had to go through this this ritual cleansing of your sin, a symbolic cleansing of your sin. So if you were a Jew, you would come to the temple and you'd go through a process of what was called ablution. So this this, um, symbolic cleansing of your hands and different parts of your body so that you could then go into the the holy place to meet with God. Like that was required. You had to go through this cleansing of your sin in order to meet with God. If you were a Gentile, you were considered as being really dirty. And so you had to go through full immersion. You would cover yourself entirely in water in order to be cleansed symbolically of your sin. Here's the interesting thing, folks. You would do that yourself. The priest wouldn't do that for you. The priest wouldn't clean you. The priest wouldn't baptise you. You would get the water and you would clean yourself up before you went in to meet with God. What's different with John the Baptist is John is saying, folks, that doesn't work. You cannot clean yourself. Someone else needs to do it for you. That's why John baptises them. They don't baptise themselves. John in his baptism is announcing the way that the sinful people that he is engaging with out of the river of Jordan, the way that a sinful people meet with a holy God. I mean, just look at him in verse 6. He's an interesting fella, right? <laughs> the kind of guy we'd probably cross onto the other side of the road if we met. But it's helpful to see what John looks like and how he engaged. He was so different to the, the priestly order. He isn't robed in the fine priestly garments that would be found in the temple. He isn't even tucked away in the temple, in the comfort, in the cleanliness of the temple. John the baptizer is a man who lives a simple life and he goes where the people are. And folks, he brings the gospel, not religion. Religion says, this is what you need to do in order to meet with God. Gospel says, this is what this person has done for you so that you can meet with God. And so by John baptizing in the way that he does, baptizing Those people, he is saying to them, you cannot clean yourself. You cannot make yourself pure. You cannot save yourself. Someone else needs to do that for you. And his is a kind of holding pattern. Until the one who brings the true baptism comes. And we see in verse 8, that Jesus will come and he will baptise his people with the Holy Spirit. John's is a symbolic cleansing with water. When Jesus comes, he brings spiritual cleansing from the Holy Spirit, from God himself. In the wilderness, we are taught that our works will never be enough to bring us life. We are taught that we cannot cleanse ourselves. We cannot save ourselves. We need to be cleansed and saved by another. Jesus loves to meet us in the wilderness. He is the king who meets us. And lastly, he is the king who saves us. Just go back up to verse 3 and see that, that proclamation that Isaiah prophesies. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. If you're making notes in your scripture journal, if you're underlining or highlighting whatever it is that you're doing there, circle, underline, scribble around that word, way. Way there in the Greek is this word hodos. It's where we get our word road or highway. Prepare the road, prepare the highway of the Lord. Make his path straight. That's what Isaiah announces. That's what John the Baptist is announcing. Make the way, the road of the Lord, the anointed king, the son of God. Make his path straight. And the reason it's helpful to, to underline that word way there is because Mark likes that word. Holodos is going to come up again in Mark's gospel. He's going to talk about the way again. Now in Mark's day, and even here in England, a few hundred years ago maybe, if a king was going to come to your village, a king was going to come to your town, and it was the first time that the king had visited your town or the queen had visited your town, they didn't want the king or the queen kind of going on the the, the rough roads and having to go the long way round. So what they would do was they would cut a new road into the village. They'd make a new road into that town and they'd cut through the, the mountains and make ways through, through the valleys and find ways across the river in order to get the, the, the smoothest way for the king to get to your town. Now, back in those days, they didn't have bulldozers and diggers and all that modern technology in order to, to do the hard work for them. If you wanted to build a road, what you needed was muscle. You needed people. And so what would happen is the king's men would come to your town and they would drag you off from your work and they would enforce you to build the road for the king. You would become their slaves until the road was complete. And you'd pour all of your effort, your energy, your blood, sweat and tears into making this road. And then the king would eventually arrive coming in on his throne and all of his fine robes to all the pomp and ceremony on the road that you had broken your back for. On the road that you had shed your blood and sweat over. Here's what's amazing about the coming of King Jesus that word, chodos, that Mark uses there. Every other time it comes up in Mark's gospel, every other time the road, the way is mentioned, Mark talks about it being a way, a road to the cross. A road to the cross. The way that is being made straight for Jesus that John the Baptist declares. It's a road to Jesus' death. The road that Jesus is about to walk as we step into this gospel is one to the cross. A cross where he secures the salvation of his people. I want to encourage us this afternoon, if you don't believe. If you haven't put your faith in Jesus. If you think there are mountains And rivers and valleys in the way of you putting your faith in Jesus. Or for those of us who are saved. The people that we've been praying for this week. During our week of prayer. The people that we we look out at and we think there is no way. There's just too many obstacles between them and Jesus. There's too many obstacles between them and putting their faith in Jesus. The mountains in between them and Jesus are too big. The valleys are too deep. The rivers are too wide for them to cross. Can I encourage you? Jesus makes the way straight. He makes the path clear. He moves the obstacles out of the way for those that he wants to profess faith in him to come to the foot of the cross, to see who he is. To come to the cross and see that they don't need to die for their sin because he has already done it. Be encouraged, folks. Even the greatest of obstacles can be moved by Jesus. Pray and ask that he would. And think of what kind of king he is. This road that King Jesus travels on, is isn't one where he sits on his throne and enslaves his people and oppresses them with terror and shame like the kings of old would have done as they would have pulled you in to make their road for them. The King that King Jesus is about to travel here in this gospel. The road that he travels, the road that he journeys along is one where he leaves his throne. It's one where he becomes the slave. It's one where he is oppressed with terror and shame for his people. The road that he travels, he travels as one who didn't come to humiliate us, but, but to be humiliated himself, himself for us. It's one way he didn't come to be subject over us, but to serve for us. King Jesus came as one to save. And so as we close, what does it look like for us to respond to him this week? In light of who we see him to be in these first eight verses, how do we respond to the real Jesus, the King Jesus this week? I think as we look at where we are found and where he finds us, we can be encouraged just to come to him as we are and to receive him for who he is. I think we can be comfortable enough to recognise our neediness in the wilderness, to recognise that it's okay to not be okay. It's okay to come to the end of ourselves and to, to find ourselves weary and to find ourselves tired and to find ourselves in a place where we just lack the resources to do what we think we need to do. It's okay to find ourselves in that place because that leads us to depend more and more on Jesus. So I think this week, folks, I think we can throw down the fear and the pretense of having to have it all together and just come to Jesus as we are. To come in our weakness and to throw ourselves onto him in full dependence. Come as you are and receive him for who he is. He's the real Jesus. He's the real deal. He is the king. He is the son of God. He isn't just a good man. He isn't just the spirit that we pray to. He isn't just the person that we sing about. He is the Christ. The son of God, the sovereign ruler of the creator. He is the only one, the only one who is able to meet us in our wilderness. Meet the 1.3 million people of our city in the wilderness. He is the only one who is able to meet us in that place. And to give us the life that we need. So folks, this week I encourage you, come to him. Come to him as you are. Weak, feeble, needy. Depend on him and see him for who he is. The king, the sovereign over all things, the son of God who has come to save us. Let's pray. As Jesus, I'm aware that some of us, even this afternoon, feel like we're in that place of wilderness We feel tired, weary, We feel like we're lacking the resources even just to wake up tomorrow and do what's ahead of us this week. And so as we're in that place, Lord Jesus, would you meet us there? And would you bring help? Lord Jesus, we pray that you would bring life to your people, hope to your people, joy to your people, and this week, as we set out, help us just to come as we are, to forget the, the pretense, to forget the bravado, to, to put away the, the lies of us being all together and all fixed up and all okay. Help us just to come to you as we are in vulnerability, in weakness. And help us to receive you for who you are, to be vulnerable before you, but to trust that That you are the Christ, you are the one who came to save, you are the king, you are the sovereign ruler of all. As we come to you, we pray that you would strengthen our faith. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would save amongst us as well. That we would have faith to believe that, that nothing is impossible for you. That even the greatest of obstacles aren't too great for you to remove, to bring your people to yourselves. So we pray that even this week that you would fill us with our faith to believe that you can save even the hardest of hearts. And it might please you to work through us for your glory, for your people's sake.